thee both now and always, we bow in your presence amazed, O glorious Christ. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, team. That was, that was beautiful and encouraging. Good morning, church. Please turn your Bibles to Haggai in chapter 2, if you will. This morning we conclude our three-week series, Considering Our Ways in the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2. There was a time when there wasn't much worse than to have the reputation as a quitter. You know, if you were thought of as someone who would start something and not finish it, that was a bad thing. In fact, that was a deep character issue. That was all about integrity. That was all about being a person of your word. It wasn't so long ago when if you were a quitter or seen to be a quitter, there couldn't have been much Worse. It's different today. But I want you to consider times in your life when you have failed to persevere, when you've given up, when you quit. It could be small things, right? It could be like starting a book or starting a project. You started strong, but you failed to finish. Or it could be bigger things, like some kind of a service project, or maybe even a marriage. Or an athletic team. Or something else. The truth is, there's no one in here who is not immune from the temptation to quit at times. From the temptation to throw in the towel when things get tough. There's not a person in here who isn't tempted to just say, I don't want to do this anymore when we don't feel like it. When it's hard. Now I'm not saying that there are not legitimate reasons to ever stop. I'm not saying that there are not legitimate reasons to just quit something. Things come up and there are times when we just have to do that. But more often than not, if we're honest, our failing to persevere is due to laziness or self-centeredness or to fear or something else. We just don't feel like going forward anymore. So do we do? We come up with a number of excuses to justify the fact that We're just not going to finish what we have begun or what we have been entrusted with. Now, as we've seen in Haggai thus far, God's people were in the land, in the promised land, had been returned to the promised land, and they were to rebuild the temple. And for about 18 years, they were living disobediently. They had started, but then they stopped because of opposition and because of political unrest and all sorts of things. They just gave up. But not only did they give up, not only did they not obey and not work on the temple, rebuilding the temple that God had, had instructed them to rebuild, they began to focus on themselves and they had begun to build for themselves these comfortable homes. And God, through the prophet Haggai, confronted his rebellious and self-centered people. He sent Haggai to the people and he said, wait a minute, you say it's not time to rebuild the temple, but is it time for you to live in paneled houses? Is it time for you to focus on yourselves? And all the stuff around them was falling apart. I mean, there was famine. They were, they were collecting wages, but it was like there was a hole in their bag that they put it in because they never had anything to show for it. Life was not good, and God was waking them up to their rebellion, and He was doing so even through the prophet Haggai. Well, Haggai 
spoke God's word to the people, and the people responded. We saw this last week. They repented. They began to work again. So now, as we begin in chapter 2, they've been working. They've repented. They've been working. But we're going to see they had started to waver again. So God again sends his prophet. We're going to look at the whole of Haggai chapter 2 today, but I want to begin just by reading the first nine verses. So if you will, please stand as we read in Haggai chapter 2, beginning in 1 and reading through verse 9. Haggai 2, beginning in verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you for this moment where we come to your word and we listen to your spirit speak to us. And God, that is what we long for, for your spirit to speak to us, for your word to penetrate deep into our being and to transform us, to help us to see and to cling to this one we sang about moments ago, the Messiah the glorious Christ. We pray this in His name and for His glory, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, while we are called to persevere in obedience to God, no one ever said that this would be easy. As sinful people, think about this, friends, all of us are in the same boat together. As sinful people, sometimes we make perseverance really difficult based on the stupid choices that we make, right? We can make life really difficult for ourselves. And not only that, we live in a world that is opposed to truth that is opposed to righteousness. And frankly, when we're trying to live according to truth, the world's not on our side. The world is against us. The world is opposing us. This is what the Israelites were facing. The Israelites were seeking to live according to the truth. We're seeking to live by God's word. But the world around them and the sin within them was setting a a barricade. There was this brokenness. Things were tough, some because they made it tough on themselves and some because of the opposition on the outside. But even if it's tough, perseverance is still what God calls us to. And the question is, why? Why is perseverance so important? Why does it matter that we persevere in obedience to God? Why does it matter that we persevere in the faith? Why does it matter? Let me read for you a passage in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, 
James writes these words. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why is perseverance important? Well, because God is at work when we persevere. God is at work when we remain steadfast under trials. He is making us mature. He is working within us character, Christ-like character. Uh, Author James MacDonald, in his book on transformation and change, writes this, There is nothing good that God brings into your life by way of transformation that He doesn't bring through the funnel of perseverance. When we remain steadfast under trial, under difficulty, but steadfast in our faith, in our trust, in our seeking the Lord, God is at work. God is changing us. God is transforming us. He's working within us Christ-like character. He is making us complete so that we will not be lacking in anything. So friends, today we pull back the curtain on repentance. And in this chapter, we're going to see uh, both common threats to perseverance and keys to persevering. So first, we see that God's powerful presence enables perseverance. God's powerful presence enables perseverance. Now, according to chapter 2 and verse 1, about seven weeks had passed since the Israelites first began to Uh, to rebuild, first began to work again on this temple. Uh, Seven or so weeks after Haggai first delivered this message. Now, based on the repeated call to the Israelites here in this passage we just read, to be strong and not to fear, it's clear that something was going on. It's clear that something was giving the Israelites hesitation. It's clear there was something that, that was causing some despondency and some despair. The people were discouraged. Now, friends, let's just admit it. Discouragement can come from many sources. Discouragement can come from many sources. Some of them from our own choices. Some of them from the own foolish things that we do. We can become despondent because of what we have chosen to do. And sometimes it's from the outside, right? Sometimes it's the opposition that we face, not least of which here in this passage, the enemies of Israel were still the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God, okay? So they were still trying to deny them. They were still trying to remove their focus from where it needed to be. So there was some discouragement. But, but also, and we see this clearly in this passage that we just read, is that there can be discouragement when we compare ourselves to others or to the things that they used to be. And we find that we are not measuring up. Comparison was clearly a cause for the people's despondency. That's what verse 3 is all about. Notice what... Haggai says to the people, God through Haggai says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So some of the people who were there rebuilding, they they were there living in, in the promised land in Jerusalem when Solomon's temple was there before the Babylonians came and destroyed it. They're not trying to hide this fact. I mean, God just says to them, look, you're looking at this and it's nothing like it was it was once. And the people cried and they said, this is nothing. 
How can this even be? The, the, the plans, the foundation for this temple don't even compare. What do we have? And they were dejected. They had begun the rebuilding process, but the blueprints were nothing compared to Solomon's temple. Now, it's easy to focus on the past. It's easy to look at some past moment and say, wait a minute, that's not like it was then. It's easy for us to do that, maybe in our own lives or maybe in the life of someone else. And we compare ourselves to someone else. And when we do that, we lose sight of what God is doing right now. We lose sight of what God has called us to right now. Now, before our family moved here 10 years ago, uh, I was pastoring a church in Chester, South Carolina. Chester, South Carolina, is a, at that time, was a town of about 8,000 people. The county, Chester County, about 25,000 people. We loved that church. We loved the people in the church, dear people. But we did not really love the area. Okay? And the truth of the matter is, most people who lived there really didn't like the area any longer. Chester was the kind of town uh, where people would talk about the past. They would talk about the glory days, I like to refer to them as. You know, back in the 1970s and 1980s when Springs Industries had all their textile plants up and it was a booming economy in Chester and there were great neighborhoods. But at this point, when we lived there, Chester was a kind of town where neither side of the tracks were the side you wanted to live on, okay? That's just the way it was. And the people were down. The people were dejected about that. And in this same way, the Israelites were discouraged because they were keenly aware that what they were rebuilding was going to be woefully short of what was once the house of God. And we can relate to that, can't we? Maybe not in a building project, but we can relate to that when we compare ourselves to other. You know, we're not as productive as other people. We look at our coworkers and we think we don't have as much talent as them or we don't have the same ability as them or we're not as fruitful as them or our church isn't as big as that church or our preacher is nowhere near the preacher as these other churches. And we could go on and on and on. And we could become dejected when we compare ourselves to our circumstances and the circumstances of others or the fruitfulness or the ability of others. But friends, when we do that, we lose sight of what God has called us to in the here and now. We lose sight of what God has called us to in terms of faithfulness and ability and obedience. See, ultimately, we're just called to be faithful. We're called to be faithful with what God has entrusted to us and instructed us to do. And what God instructed the Israelites to do was to rebuild a temple. Friends, he wasn't concerned about the things that the people had no control over. He just wanted them to be faithful to his call. And that's the same with us, right? God wasn't demanding that the temple be as ornate and as glorious as Solomon's temple. That's not what he was commanding. He just said, rebuild the temple. He wanted their heartfelt obedience. He wanted their faithfulness. He wanted their joyful submission to whatever it is he has called you, what he has called us to. He wasn't focused on the externals. He was focused on the internal faithfulness to him, the obedience to him. But the people were despondent. They were fearful 
They were afraid. So what did God encourage them with? What did Haggai speak to the people? Notice there at the end of verse 4. I am with you. Be strong, be strong, be strong. I am with you. Verse 5. My spirit remains with you. Hear this, friends. A key to perseverance is remembering that you are not alone. A key to perseverance is remembering that God is with us. That His Spirit has not left us. He has not abandoned us. When times are difficult and you wonder, how am I going to get through this? Oh, this diagnosis I just received, how are we going to get through this? Oh, this turmoil that our family's in, how are we going to get through this? Oh, the difficulties that my children are facing in school. How are we going to get through this? Oh, the financial times. Oh, the the disasters that we face. How are we going to get through this? And friends, what God is saying to us is this. Be strong. I'm with you. The good shepherd is with us. Friends, God's presence matters because God is all powerful. God's presence matters because God is sovereign and because He is good. If God wasn't who He said He was, maybe His presence wouldn't be quite as reassuring as it is. But friends, He is who He says He is. He is all-powerful. Notice verses 6-8, through if you will. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations. I will shake the nations. Now, this idea of shaking implies God's power and his sovereignty. In fact, many of the prophets utilize the same language, right? Amos and Joel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, they all speak of God's shaking of the nations. His shaking of the nations in judgment and in power. Walt Kaiser, a commentator, a theologian, suggests that this points to the truth that the future belongs to the Lord. The future belongs to the Lord. And church, if the Lord holds the future, then we have no ultimate reason to fear. And we have every motivation to persevere. Whatever the difficulty, whatever the trial, we have every reason to persevere in seeking after, in trusting, and in following the Lord. Verse 6, yet once more in a little while, I will shake it. I'll shake everything God is saying. Now, some commentators see this as a reference to the Exodus, which I agree with because there at the end of uh, verse 4, he's reminding of the covenant when they left uh, slavery in the Exodus and God's spirit was there with them. But just think about how this works. God's presence is there providing for them and protecting them. And we're going to come back to this idea of the treasures of the nations and the house of the Lord, the glory of the house of the Lord uh, later. But the initial fulfillment of this likely referred to God's provision for the completion of the very temple that they had begun and that they were working on. But here's the point. When you're tempted to throw in the towel, when you're tempted to quit, when you're tempted to just give up, maybe because it's difficult or maybe just because you don't feel like it anymore. Remember this. You're not alone. And God is powerful. And He provides what is necessary to follow Him. God provides what is necessary to follow Him faithfully. It's always His strength, friends. 
It's always His strength. It's not our own strength. So continue in obedience. Now, not only does God's powerful presence prompt our perseverance, but so does God's grace. So does God's grace. The second heading this morning, God's grace spurs perseverance. God's grace spurs perseverance. As sinners, we are so prone to exalting our own efforts and so prone to making much of ourselves. We're prone to become presumptuous and infatuated with who we are and what we've done and with what we bring to the table. But in verses 10 through 19, God is telling us, friends, to stop patting ourselves on the back. Let's read verses 10 through 19 together. Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind of food, does it become holy too? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any, any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean, unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to heap to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, And the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. Now, let's just be honest. When you first read this, when you first hear this, you think, this this just seems kind of out of place. Why is he talking about food that's clean and unclean and touching dead bodies and making other things unclean? It doesn't really seem like this really fits with the flow of things. but, But just track with me for a moment here. Because what God is telling us, what he's showing us is a comparison. He wants to communicate to us that if he can do one thing that's greater, then he can do something else that's lesser. If he can make us clean by his grace, then he can cause us to persevere by his grace. In a nutshell, God is saying that unless he works graciously in our lives... We will remain undone and broken spiritually. And if God is graciously able to make us spiritually clean, then he is gracious enough and is able to cause us to persevere, to spur us on to perseverance. So he he calls for the people to, to get a ruling from the priests. He says, now listen, if you're carrying some holy bread in the fold of your garment, right? Some bread that's been sanctified. It's for use in the temple. If you bring that bread and you touch common things with it, does that holy piece of bread there that's been consecrated, does it make something else clean? Does it make what is not clean, clean? Does it make what is not holy, holy? And they say, no, it doesn't do that. 
It can't do that. Holiness doesn't come through external things like that. No, of course not. Okay, that's the right answer. Then he gives another thing. He says, okay, so let's say someone it goes and touches a dead body or touches this food with, to something that is unclean. Does that, in fact, make that unclean? The thing that was clean, unclean? And the answer is yes, it does. It can be communicated that direction. It is unclean because of that. What is God trying to tell us? What is he saying? Friends, he's talking about a people here. He's not so much talking about things. He's talking about a people here. God's people. They were consecrated. God had chosen them from among all the nations to be his people. Yet they had become unclean. And frankly, all sinners, all humans are unclean before God. And simply because the people had responded now, verses 14 and 15, in obedience, beginning to put brick on brick and rebuild the temple, that doesn't make them clean. What he's saying here is if you are unclean, you don't become clean simply by your actions of external obedience. That's not what makes you clean. If my hands are filthy from petting the dogs and then I come in, I know, mother's nightmare, right? And set the table and touch the food and all that stuff. Everything is defiled now. Everything is dirty. Sorry, babe. Right? Now, spiritually speaking, if my heart is filled with sin, then all the works of my hands are contaminated as well. That said, friends, God is gracious. He determines to cleanse us. He determines to sanctify us. He determines to bless us. While the people's offerings are stained, God says, from this day forward, verse 19, I will bless you. Friends, God's promise here, His grace wasn't due to their obedience. It wasn't due to their Accomplishment. It was God's grace. So let's break this down. External religious acts cannot earn us favor with God. Ever. External religious acts cannot earn us favor with God. They can't cleanse us before God. They can't wash away sinfulness. We can't do anything to make ourselves right with God. We can't do anything to make God accept us or love us because our sin defiles us and it comes from the inside out. Hear this. Righteousness doesn't come from what a person does for God, but from what God does for the person. Righteousness does not come from what a person does for God, but from what God does for a person. Our standing with Jesus, excuse me, our standing with God doesn't come through our spotty and incomplete obedience, but through Jesus' perfect obedience. God became a man. And God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham to bless the nations through his seed. God became a man, Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect life. We sin, we fall short, we rebel, and we will experience the wrath of God on our sin because this is, how, this is what God demands, that we would obey Him perfectly, but we can't and we don't. But Jesus did. And God 
in keeping his promise says, if we will place our hope in Jesus Christ, the finished work, his perfect life, his sacrificial, his substitutionary death on the cross to pay for our sin and then his resurrection from the dead, then we will have the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. This is the only way to be righteous before God. What God does for us. So let me ask, where do you stand in light of your sin and God's justice? What do you make of Jesus Christ? There are people in this room today who have yet to put their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ. Who have yet to turn from their sin and to to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You're doing a lot of great things. Right? Like there's a lot of external religiosity in your life and you're trying your best, but friends, it'll never make you clean. Your only hope comes in the blood of Jesus Christ and it's available today if you will turn from your sin and put your hope in Christ then you will be forgiven your sin, given the promise of eternal life and be reconciled to God. So what does this have to do with perseverance, you ask? Well, simply this. If God graciously accomplishes salvation, then he can graciously ensure our perseverance. Because hear this. In that statement, God accomplishes our salvation, is implied our perseverance. If he has accomplished our salvation, that means it's accomplished. And for those who are in Christ, we will persevere by his grace. So we're just simply called to faith, to trust him, and out of gratefulness to walk in obedience. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he writes to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13? When he speaks about how the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age? Don't forget the end. As we wait... For the blessed hope. That's a statement about perseverance. As we wait, as we persevere, as we are seeking after, longing for the appearing of Jesus Christ. See, if perseverance depends on our own strength and our own wisdom, then we are in trouble. But just like the rest of the Christian life, we are called to persevere. And it's only because of God's grace that we actually persevere. It's God's grace, just like the entirety of the Christian life. It is God's grace. So we see God's powerful presence, and we see God's grace, but we also see that God's Messiah ensures perseverance. God's Messiah ensures perseverance. Let's look at those last verses, 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying... I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and the riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now this is the second time uh, in these prophecies that God has referred to the shaking of the nations. 
That God is going to shake things up. He's going to overthrow the kingdoms and the rulers and the armies and the nations. And God seems to indicate that this is going to be connected to something about the reign or the rule of Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. Of course, nothing in Zerubbabel's life indicates that any real shaking took place. And truthfully, if you just look at the history of all this, we don't really know even what happened to Zerubbabel. However, we do know that Zerubbabel was in the Davidic line. Zerubbabel was the uncrowned son of David. And in Matthew chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, Zerubbabel is listed in the family tree of Jesus. And as we consider the book of Haggai, and especially Haggai chapter 2 as a whole, what we see is a messianic prophecy. Two times now, Haggai has referred to the shaking of the nations, the shaking of the earth and the heavens. And interestingly enough, the author of Hebrews picks up on this very thing. Hebrews chapter 12, let me read for you verses 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. See, friends, ultimately, this idea of the shaking of the heavens and the earth and everything in them is a reference to God's judgment at the return of Jesus Christ when he sets up this eternal kingdom as he rules victoriously from his throne. God will shake everything. And only that which remains on the solid rock that is Jesus Christ will remain. But it's not only that. It's not only the shaking that has messianic implications. Look again, Haggai chapter 2 and verse 7. And I will shake the nations so that the treasures of the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. That text, that translation, the treasures of the, he- of the nations, many refer to or see a reference to Jesus. In fact, the King James Version says the desire of the nations. And remember the words of Simeon when Jesus is brought to the temple for all the purification and all the rituals and all that. And, and Simeon says that Jesus is the salvation that God has prepared in the presence of all the peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. He is the desire of nations as the one in whom there is life. And yes, the nations will bring their treasures and rebuild the temple. Yes, that happened. But don't forget, it was at Jesus' birth when the Magi from the nations came and they laid their treasures down at the feet of Jesus. And God says, I will fill this house. I will fill this house with glory. Referring to the temple. And what is the temple? The temple points to the presence of God. And where does the presence of God remain? Most fully in Jesus Christ. 
We see this in John chapter 1 and verse 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us as we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter chapter 2 verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19, the fullness of God dwells in Him. That is Jesus. And don't forget that Jesus prophesied of himself. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. John chapter 2 verse 19. When Haggai prophesied of the glory of the temple, friends, Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment. And the peace that Haggai speaks of in verse 8 there, in this place I will give peace, doesn't refer to a temple in Jerusalem. It refers to the person of Jesus Christ. For it's only in Christ that there is true peace. It's only in the Prince of Peace that we find peace. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, Jesus, ensures our perseverance because he's already won the victory, because he's already accomplished our salvation, and he is able to sustain us to the end. He is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory. Jude, in verse 24. Friends, we sang of this earlier, but here's our hope. Here is our hope that a mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus, ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. So what do we do? We rest in him. We rest in the one who's already won the battle. We live for his glory. We seek him. We love the one who has accomplished our salvation. Whose presence enables our perseverance whose grace spurs us on to perseverance, and whose Messiah, who Jesus himself, ensures our perseverance. Even we don't feel like it. Why? Because God never asks his children to do something that will not ultimately be for their good. And he never withholds grace from his children when he commands them to follow. He's with us. And his spirit is with us. His powerful presence, his grace... Messiah. So what is it in your life? Where are there struggles? Where are there difficulties? Friends, walk by faith. Look to the one who has accomplished salvation on your behalf. Believe the promises of God and draw near to the Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we We don't come in our own strengths. We don't live by our own strengths. 
Lord, we come and we declare that we don't have the strength. We rest in you and we seek you. We pray that you would fill us. We pray that your spirit's presence would strengthen us and give us confidence to walk in obedience and faithfulness. Lord, we don't have it within us. We need you. But you're gracious. And we know that you long to lavish grace and mercy upon your own. So Lord, we receive that by faith and we seek to follow you for your glory. Lord, be at work in this room. There are people here who need to know the saving work of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you call them by name to yourself? There are men and women and boys and girls in here who need to persevere because life's difficult. Would you remind them of your presence and your grace? Would you remind them of the finished work of Jesus Christ and help them to, to fix their eyes on you? For you are the author and the perfecter. May your people respond in worship even now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may stand, sing with us. If you have questions, please come talk to us now.